uh, we're grateful that you've joined us this morning. Who here is excited right now for Christmas? If you're going to give a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being the Grinch and 10 being oh, Gail Friesen, <laughs> how many of you would say you're at a 3 right now? Okay, 4? How about a 5? You're at a 5? Six? 6? Six? All right, 7? 8? Nine? Oh, how many of you are not going to answer me? No matter how many you're going to Okay, thanks, Alice. Oh, 15. Okay, well, good. Well, guys, I'm excited about Christmas. I love Christmas time. There are some things about Christmas that I don't like. I don't know if you don't, you feel the same way. I'm, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, the universalism of Christmas. I mean, kind of just make it a holiday about the lights. And the fluff, I, you know, take say you're out. I'm not a big fan of that. I'm not a fan of consumerism. But there are things about Christmas that I absolutely love. Two in particular I'm going to give you. And the first one is, is that it's the only time of the year the entire church in the entire country, or even maybe the whole world, is singing the same songs. Have you noticed that? Right? If you go to any other church right now, during any course of the year, they'll probably have songs that they love to sing, and they're different from the songs that we love to sing. But at Christmas time, everyone sings what? The? Oh, come on. Christmas carols, right? And it's a really cool thing that unites us together in that. I love that. I love the aspect of giving to the poor uh, during Christmas time, and that we are, our, our hearts are generous. And if you remember last week, or you know, you've been here at Manor during the fall, you know that we had uh, just finished our series in the Book of Esther, and we ended the series last week talking about the Jewish uh, holiday of Purim. And what Purim is, is it's a celebration of salvation. And we kind of ended that sort of uh, series by saying that it's important for Christians to rhythmically and regularly celebrate the fact that uh, we are saved, and that Christmas can be that time of year where we celebrate uh, our salvation, where there's joy, where there's it's uh, where we work and, and, and uh, see the Lord coming, and uh, that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, what I'd like to do for the next, uh, you want to get the, the yeah. Uh, what I want to do for the next four weeks is I want to talk about Christmas. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. All right. And what I want to do in particular is I want to give you a vision of Christmas that's worth celebrating. I want to give you four reasons from the Bible about why you should work really, really, really hard and joy this year. Okay? And the reason that I'm bringing this up and that sort of thing is because I've kind of found that when we talk about Christmas, it's, you know, the, what is the song? Oh, it's the... It's the happiest time of the year, it's the, you know, it's merry and bright, and what I found, quite honestly, is that for a lot of people, that kind of idea about Christmas being a time of joy, and a time of celebration, falls flat, and I think it falls flat on, on two fronts. Number one, there's a lot of fluff in the Christmas season, right? Am I not? Right? And on top of that, it's also a very stressful time of year. Is there an amen to that? Yeah, that can't be right. There's, there's the bills, right? It can be super expensive. 
there's all the busyness associated with Christmas. There's all the uh, uh, parties and in-laws and all the kind of strained relationships. Or it might even be something more serious. It might be something a little bit more like there's a chair at the table that's going to be empty this year. And so all the reasons for being merry and bright and celebrating just kind of go away. And so what I want to do this Christmas is I want to give you four reasons from the Bible that you should celebrate Christmas and work hard at the spiritual discipline of joy. And to do that, I'm going to do something very unique this Christmas. I am going to tell you about the Christmas story from passages of the Bible that we don't normally talk about on Christmas. So in a couple weeks we'll talk about uh, a passage from Micah, maybe next week we'll talk about Philippians 2, but today I am going to give you the Christmas story from a book in the Bible that would be your last one to expect about Christmas. And I want to give you one reason from it that you should celebrate the Christmas story. So can we do that? Yeah, all right. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 is where we're going to be at this morning. Okay? And if you don't have your Bible, I'd love for you to have your Bible and bring it before you. And as we're doing that, um, I'm just going to make a quick plug for prayer. So, uh, I, I, this week, or, I'd love for you to come out uh, this evening. We're going to have a time of worship and prayer. We're going to pray for each other because we believe that prayer is important. The other thing I want to let you know about is every Tuesday uh, on the church website, there's a link that we post to a Zoom meeting where we pray. And we would love to join us in prayer. It's been a real blessing. And I just, uh, I just thought I... I, I and give maybe a minute or two for Dale to come up and share uh, just what it's been like for him uh, coming to the prayer meeting. So, everyone say hi to things a lot deeper than that. 
It uh, reveals your inner self, your motives, and your concerns. And Pete and I appreciate hearing our seniors pray. Believe it or not, there are people older than us. <laughs> we are seniors ourselves. And um, some of the things that we pray for routinely is the family of the week, and we just mentioned that. The missionary of the week, we always pray for that. And then some of the other things that we include in our prayer time would be uh, the war in Israel, the war in Ukraine, the pastor, board members, congregation, governments, social issues, health issues, our families, our children that we would learn to discern. We pray for each other, our community, the salvation of the lost. I believe that we've had a high number of um, 11 attending our Zoom meetings with a little tree. And, uh, but I, I'm so glad that it says that there are two or three are gathered together that we know that he's in the And I also wanted to mention too that our Zoom meetings can be flexible. They don't necessarily have to be on a given night or at uh, 7 o'clock. That can be adjusted. And Zoom is just super easy. You don't even have to get out of your pajamas if you don't want <laughs> Depending where you have the camera. <laughs> so it, it usually runs about three quarters of an hour. And I just like to uh, make it known that everybody is welcome. It's, uh, it's a time that is well spent. And so I would just like to invite anyone, if you're interested, it's real easy. Go on the church website. Find the prayer meeting, click on the app, and then lead you right to it. So, thank you. Thanks, Dale. So, yeah, I do, I do want to let you know that if your name and your family comes up as a family of the week, it's just not something that's lip service. We do actually pray for you, and we want you to know that. All right, let's look at Revelation chapter 12, and I'm going to tell you the Christmas story from the perspective of Revelation. So, here we go. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, says this. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So there's a sign, there's, there's this picture of this woman. She's clothed with the sun. She's uh, about to give birth. And then there's a second sign. And the second sign comes in verse 3. It says, Another sign appeared uh, in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns. On his heads had seven diadems. He had swept down a third of the stars in the heaven and cast them to the earth. Now before we go on any further, I want to address probably what you're thinking right now. And that is this. Is in the story, you know, so far we have a pregnant wo woman wearing the sun and a seven-headed seven dragon. And you're probably thinking, that's not the Christmas story I know. Right? How many of you are thinking that? Yeah. You're probably thinking of baby Jesus. You're thinking of the, the wise man, you know, uh, Herod, and all that. And that's true. That's and I want to say to you that this is that exact story. Okay? But it's told from the perspective of Revelation. And I mean, the book of Revelation. And the thing that you need to understand 
about Revelation, the scripture that we just read, is that uh, the book is titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word that is, uh, the, the, the word that we translate revelation, the word root is apocalypse. Okay? Now, I'm just kind of curious. Shout out for me the very first thing when you hear the word apocalypse. Zombies. Zombies? Okay, zombies in church. We'll go right ahead. Anyone else? Robots. Robots? End of the world kind of thing, right? Uh, usually, uh, when you hear the word apocalypse in the media, it's always connotated with something bad, you know, forest fires, uh, you know, COVID, you know, whatever. It's the apocalypse. But that's actually not the real understanding of the word apocalypse. That's the understanding even in 2023. But when Revelation was written, it had a different meaning. And the word revelation, according to Strong's Dictionary, I have to look this up, is that it's, uh, the idea is, is that there's something hidden that was always there that is now being unveiled, okay? So it's this idea that um, the apocalypse means you, the, here's, here's the hidden, here's something hidden that we are now going to disclose to you. And so what winds up happening throughout the entire book is that it's a disclosure of the hidden things about what is to come in the future in Jesus' second coming. But it's also a disclosure of what has happened uh, in, in the unseen realms. Christians believe that there, are, there is a physical world right here that you and I are part of, right? We live, we breathe, you know, there's and all that kind of thing. But we also believe that there is a spiritual world. Atheists will come together and say, there's nothing, there's nothing real except what we can smell and touch and taste and everything like this. Christians, however, believe that there is an unseen realm, heaven and hell, where, uh, where, where there's a lot, there's things that we don't see. And so what winds up happening is when you get to Revelation 12, this is, really, this is why I'm talking about this, what you are reading is you are reading the Christmas story from the perspective of someone that's revealing what is behind the scenes and what is unseen. You're seeing it from the perspective of heaven and hell down on earth. Right? And so for that reason, what you are reading is very allegorical, it's very figurative, but it is the Christmas story, and specifically, or specifically the first five verses are, but the rest of uh, chapter 12 is how the Christmas story fits into the narrative or the battle between God and good and evil. So let me, let me go for it. So as we go for it, oh, here's what I said. You and I are reading a vision of Christmas from the unseen spiritual realm. It's an image that's supposed to give us a portrayal of the great spiritual reality, which tells us why things on earth are happening the way they are. See, the Christmas story isn't just a physical story of a young woman and a man and baby Jesus being born physically on earth. There's a spiritual component to it, and that's what you're reading. So, because of that, let me, let me help you understand the story a little bit, okay? The woman in the story represents Israel, the dragon represents Satan, and I'll talk about this as we go through verse by verse. The angel Michael represents the head of the angel coast. The offspring of the woman represents Gentiles who come to faith, that's you and me. And uh, the beast 
uh, represents the Antichrist, or you would say. So let me let me uh, go through it verse by verse, and then I'm going to pull out something for you. I promise will be practical and hopefully new to this Christmas. So here we go. Verse one. In verse one and two, we learn that Israel produces the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read this for you again. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the sun, moon, and on her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, let me talk about this for a quick second because your first thought is like, well, if it's the Christmas story, then the woman would represent Mary, right? That's sort of where the thinking goes. But I can tell you with certainty that the woman in the story does not represent Mary. And if you, reason, if you look at it, uh, there's two reasons why. If you go all the way down to verse 17, it says this. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the west of her offspring. You might say, well, who are her offspring? We know that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, but that's not what it's talking about here. The rest of the offspring are defined. They are designed as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so here what you have is like the offspring represents the Christians, the people that come to faith in Jesus Christ. So then who is, now, how do I know for sure that that's defining, uh, defines Israel, not Jesus? And the reason, uh, here's what I'm going to say. If you go back all the way to Genesis 37, verses 9 and 11, there's a story in which Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, Israel is resembled by the moon. Uh, uh, the moon represented Joseph's mother, and the 11 stars were the sons of Israel that bowed down on Joseph. In the sign, the 12 stars, Joseph is now among the other tribes of Israel. The woman here, most likely, is a reference to Israel and the fact that Israel gives birth to the Messiah. Okay. And that's sort of the whole story of the Old Testament. The old story is that God creates a people for himself, a nation for himself, for the purposes of leading up to the person of Jesus Christ. There's a, a covenant or a promise that God had made Abraham. Does anyone know what it is? From you a great nation will be will come and all nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the answer to that. So when you read verse 1 and 2, her, her, it's telling you that Israel is the one that gives birth and uh, produces Jesus Christ. Then you uh, go to verse 3, and it says this. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, as it said, seven diadems. So the head, seven heads means that this dragon... Uh, or is, over, is able to hold power over the nation and give direction to them. And the seven diadems are to uh, the seven crowns. So this is speaking about someone who has political power over the world. It says this, his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them in the earth. In other words, he's able to destroy a well. Um, and sort of that's the point. The point is, is that he is uh, willing and he's, he goes on to say that as the dragon stood before the woman and it was 
about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Okay? So it's a little bit of a scary scene, right? This is in the normal Christmas story. There's a pregnant woman about to give birth, and there's a seven-handed dragon ready to kill whatever comes out of it. Does that not have any parallels with what? The... Come on. Anybody losing you guys here so far? The terror. Or more importantly, uh, it is what Herod God saved us through here. If you go to verse 5 and 6, it actually says that it, Satan attempts to destroy Jesus. It says that she gave birth to a male child, one to rule over all the nations with the wrought iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So, here's what it's saying, right? This, uh, remember how I told you that Psalms, when we were doing the series on Psalms in the summertime, Psalms is the most quoted book in the entire New Testament. This is a reference to Psalms. So, if you look here, it says, She gave birth to a male child, the one who is ruled over the nations with a broad iron. And I'm going to tell you that that person is Jesus. Okay? How do I know that? Because Psalms chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is what we call a messianic song. It's a song about Jesus and his servants. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a white. So, when you read the book of Revelation, it's really important that you understand all the Old Testament kind of references. And so what this is, is this is a reference to the person of Jesus being born. And as you know in the story, the Christmas story, the child represents the Messiah coming into the world. The dragon is Satan himself who seeks to destroy the Messiah. And so he said, so what winds up happening is he goes, I'm going to murder him. And at the very moment he's born, I'm going to prevent the gospel from coming into the world. So this is a great spiritual explanation of what is going on behind the Christmas story that you and I know. Now during that time, at the birth of Jesus, the king of the Jews, at this point in time, there was a man named Herod the Great. He was, he was a man that built lots of projects in that day, but he was a cruel and despicable man. And if you know your Christmas story at all, you also know that it was Herod the Great who, after hearing from the wise men that the Christ child had been born, sent out troops into Bethlehem, and he called for them to kill every male two years old and younger to make sure that he had wiped out the Messiah. Right? So... We know that that event actually happened in history. We also know that as a consequence of that, Mary and Joseph, before this even happened, had already got out of town. They had headed towards the Judean wilderness, south of Israel, and continued to travel until they got to Alexandria in Egypt, where they lost themselves in a crowd, where Herod, the king of the Jews, would not be able to find them. So that, in fact, is the Christmas story. And what winds up happening is verse 7 to 17 tells you about what happens as a result of that. First thing is that Satan is thrown down from his position of accusing. Listen to what the text says. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, not his Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient servant, the one who was called the devil, the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so ultimately, Satan was defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul makes that point clear uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so what you have here is you have a story, I think, that is a reference to the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated ultimately Satan and his hordes. That is, he subjected them to public shame. And by, drive, and then by dying on the cross and securing a people of God for himself, Satan recognized that he lost his authority to hold the entire earth captive under his control. Jesus had entered into Satan's cruel realm and defeated him. And at that point in time, Satan is thrown down from heaven. See, see here's the point I'm trying to make. He's thrown down from his position as accuser. There's a great war of heaven that Satan lost. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Am I losing you? Okay. It's, it's very figurative, so I want to make sure uh, I'm, I'm doing a good job helping make sure this is clear. In verse 12, it says this, In his anger over the loss, Satan turns his fury towards the planet Earth. It says this, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in what? Great wrath, because he knows his time is short. See, this is the explanation of what is happening. This is the moment in the story that I believe that we are living in right now. It's when the devil, the, the, the devil has lost the power of the cross, Satan has lost a great battle and in his fury turns his guns on the people of the earth, wanting to decimate the entire planet. And basically say, if I'm going to lose, I'm going to take the people that you love most down with me. Okay? And he actually starts with the nation of Israel. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down the earth, he pursued the woman who had give, given birth to the male child. So I need you to stop and think about that for a moment. When the dragon's been defeated by the Messiah, he turns his attention towards the woman. He turns his guns towards Israel. And I mean, if you want a great explanation of the anti-Semitism we see in this day, this story is telling you why. I would just, if you Google it right now, and you ask, if you ask Google, like, so Google's the truth of everything, right? There are about 16 million people who identify as, as having a Jewish heritage that are living on the planet right now. 16 million people. How many people live on the planet right now? Okay. So if you did the math, that's less than 1% of the population is Jewish. 
And so by it kind of feels like the antagonism, the the prejudice, the racism feels a lot stronger to then account for like 0.2% of the population. Why is that? It's because Satan has turned his hatred and his attention towards Israel, the people of God that have been responsible for giving us Jesus, and he has taken it out on them. That's why I believe that we have experienced such things like the Holocaust. And that's why I believe today, too, there is a rise of anti-Semitism. Verse 14 to 16 says this, is that even though Israel, uh, Satan turns his fight, his uh, ascension to Israel, God will protect the people. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place that where she is nursed for time, times and a half, and half a time. The serpent poured water out like a river from its mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood from the earth. But the earth uh, came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Now there's a lot of theology in that, right? I could do a whole message just on that. But what I just want you to take from this morning is that God will protect his people Israel. And Satan finally has the last great uh, opportunity to wipe out all the Jews. God will protect Israel in some fashion. We're not exactly told how, but he will. In some sort of supernatural form, God protects the people of Israel. After that, Satan then turns his attention to the believers. Verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of who? Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, that is, he stood on the shore and he watched. Which is, with all this evil that, that is planning, he's saying, let's just see how this plans out. See, he's at the shore and he's kind of watching to see all this has this happened. And that, my friends, is the Christmas story according to Revelation. Now, how many of you went, that's a, that, I, that, I'm, that's weird. Like, hands up, okay? That's a little weird. And let me, let me help you out and explain this a little bit. What you are reading is an account of how the Christmas story, Jesus' birth into the world, ultimately leads to the defeat of Satan. This is a war story between God and Satan. A story in which God wins and Satan doesn't. And so I think that it is very important for you to answer this question. What, why is Christmas worth celebrating from this vision? And I'm going to give you the number one reason why I think for celebrating Christmas this season. Ready? This is the reason that you should be joyful. This is the reason that you should stress yourself out over the turkey. This is the reason why you should have friends over. This is the reason why you should work at being, uh, working a spiritual muscle of joy. This is why you have to work hard at joy. Here's what Revelation tells us about Christmas and why Christmas should be a time of joy, and that's this, is that there is no one left to shame you. 
Let me say that again. Revelation chapter 12 tells us a great story between, it's an epic fight between God and Satan, in which God defeats Satan. And at the end of it, I want you to understand that Christmas tells us that there is no one left to accuse you, there's no one left to shame you, to point your finger at you, or whatever. Listen again, look at the text again. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 says this. For the what? The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. In room, now, let me explain this for a moment, for, for a second. You might remember that in Job, in the Old Testament, Job is a righteous man, and he fears God. There is no one like him in all the earth. One day, Satan comes before God, and he says, I have some accusations to bring against Job. So it would seem like, reading from the book of Job, that Satan seems to have this regular access before God's throne, and he regularly accuses God's people of wrongdoing. And I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine that Satan, uh, let, me, let me back up and say this, okay? Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world, and it actually tells you that not to be aware of his schemes. And so Satan, what he does, because he's a defeated foe, He's got three tricks, and they're always the same tricks. He tempts you, and well, for today I'll just mention two. He tempts you, and he accuses you. So what he does is he comes along in your life, and he says, you don't have to do that. Just, I'm going to tempt you with this. It's totally okay. God's okay with you. God wants you to have good things. And then you give in the temptation, and then what winds up happening is that he comes around and he says, What kind of Christian are you? You must not love God. You're pitiful. You're nothing. Why would God even love you? The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. That constantly, day and night, he is trying to pull you down and accuse you of not being, not wanting to follow God. That's what Satan does. I want you to imagine for a moment that we're here at church and that we are sharing, you know, what God is doing in our life and that you have a secret, a secret so shameful and so embarrassing that you have vowed to take it to your grave, okay? And then somebody knows your secret and then got up on stage, right here on Sunday morning, and told not only all the congregation about it, but everyone who was watching over the internet about your secret sin. How embarrassed would you be? Would you be embarrassed? That's the function of the city. Like, he's the one that's constantly accusing you before God. what I want you to see here in this story is this is a story about how the guy that is accusing me is defeated. Because on the cross, 
Jesus ultimately is saved by paying for the sins of his people. And so they are exonerated from their sins and presented as a holy people before God. And Satan has no more power to accuse you, no more power to shame you, no more power to give you guilt, no power at all if he can't accuse you. There's no one left to accuse you. Okay? There's no, what does Romans 8 say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Revelation tells us a version of the Christmas story where the events of Christmas are part of an epic conflict between God and Satan. It tells us that not only is there a great spiritual war, but it tells us in the end of the day, that battle is the Lord's, and he has no doubt of the outcome. We ought to remember that the battle that we face day in and day out belongs to Jesus. And we ought to remember that no matter how evil things may seem, Satan does not present himself as an equal force to God. Because the battle is the Lord's. There is no one to condemn you anymore. Christmas is a promise, friends. That 30 years or so from the birth of Jesus, he is going to take every wrong, every injustice, every bit of pain, every lonely Christmas, everything that you're ashamed of, every mistake that you have made, and he is going to nail it to the cross. Your story of mistakes and failure is forgiven and rewritten at the foot of the cross. God made your life through the cross to be guilt-free, shame-free, and have no fear, no regret. There's no one left to shame you this Christmas. You have a reason to celebrate. So therefore, if the great accuser of the brethren has been thrown in, and there's no one left to accuse you or condemn you anymore. What is the application of that? Does anyone want to take a guess? Therefore, I want to give I want to give you reason number one to celebrate this year, and that is because of Jesus' death and victory on the cross. There is no condemnation for those who Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, let's close with the Christmas.